0: Hello and welcome to The Stand with M. Dunphy. Now, in London yesterday, the Metropolitan Police announced that their inquiry into what has become known as Partygate is complete. In total, 83 people were fined for breaking the lockdown rules. There were 126 fines altogether, which meant, which means, rather, that some of those people were fined more than once, and had more than one offence to their name. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, was widely believed to be at risk of having more fines because he was at a number of the parties, but no, no more fines for Boris. And many people are saying now that he has escaped yet again his crime in many people's eyes, that he broke the rules and those people around him that they themselves had drawn up. We're joined now by Chris Johns to discuss this. Chris, of course, is former Chief Economist of the Bank of Ireland and a very respected commentator now. Chris, the remarkable greased piglet, as David Cameron once described him, has escaped again for the moment, although Sue Gray's report, which he's fighting to get out next week, poses some kind of threat. It's a remarkable story, isn't it?
1: It is truly remarkable about how this man always seems to get away with it as David Cameron famously remarked and now he I doubt very much whether this, the contents of the Sue Gray report are g- going to affect him politically if what has already happened the criminal offence that he has been fined for hasn't damaged him in any material way within the Conservative Party his standing in the country is a different matter his own opinion poll rankings are at all-time lows, but even they don't seem to matter. The only thing that really matters is him keeping the Parliamentary Conservative Party on side, which mostly just means placating uh, a bunch of right-wing people, particularly those um, in the old uh, European research group, people like that, and um, that's where things like the Northern Ireland Protocol come in. But in terms of surviving this latest scandal, he's done it yet again. And he frankly seems safe for as long as he wants to be in Downing Street. And he's been quoted as saying that you will need a flamethrower to get me out. And um, there certainly isn't one in evidence at the moment.
0: Now, the British economy is in a bad way, Chris. And the relationship between the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, and Boris Johnson is not believed to be great because Johnson or allies of Johnson were leaking against Sunak, and indeed against his wife, and he appears to have faded as a threat to Boris Johnson. But more importantly, their economy appears to be in pretty bad shape. On some metrics, it's the worst. He's been saying in the House of Commons for some time now that the, the best in the G7 at almost everything, now they're the worst in the G7. And the Governor of Bank of England this week, Andrew Bailey, and central bankers are not known for hyperbole, Bailey said that their economy in terms of food supply is in an apocalyptic state, which is quite a statement from a central banker. And you've been a banker yourself, and you'll probably know better than most how conservative central bankers are, for obvious reasons.
1: Yes, normally central bankers try to stay invisible. In terms of the popular media, they're happy to see themselves appearing in the business pages now and again, but not too often. They want to be boring. That's been the uh, mantra of central banking for for many years now. And what Andrew Bailey is getting in the neck from all sides at the moment, um, not least from the Parliamentary Conservative Party, many of whom are gunning for him, and some have even suggested anonymously to lobby correspondents that um, his job is in jeopardy. What has he done? He's just spoken the truth, which, of course, in these febrile times that we live in, gets you into trouble. And he's talked about facts. He's talked about data. He hasn't offered any real opinion, which can be challenged, because he's simply quoting numbers and using words like apocalypse. Um, the Economist, speaking, the Economist newspaper, speaking about the exact exact same phenomena, food prices. This time in a global context warned of a global catastrophe this week. And that's because of both supply of foods coming out of Ukraine and Russia, obviously are heavily constrained for obvious reasons, and therefore the price is going up a lot. And the United Nations echoed Andrew Bailey's remarks about food costs and supplies this week and a warning about right famine, not just about the high prices causing people on low incomes and countries on low incomes, but the possibility that people are going to go hungry because of this, and um, that people ultimately might die because of this. There were the war I a mean, sound apocalyptic. They are backed by data. The, the, the numbers are scary because Russia and Ukraine supply 28% of globally traded wheat, 29% of barley, 15% of maize, and 75% of sunflower oil. I could go on. Um, but in terms of the way in which Analysts measure this in terms of the amount of calories that countries and individuals consume. Russia and Ukraine account for an awful lot, depending on where you are around the world. It's uneven, of course. But places in in North Africa, for example, are very, very heavily exposed. And what Andrew Bailey was doing was talking, of course, about the UK's exposure to this. Probably less exposed to actual shortages, although I wouldn't rule that out in certain cases. The concern he has is... The actual price of this stuff, whether it's in shorts, whether the shelves are empty or not, the price of this stuff is going through the roof. And as you rightly said, the UK now has the highest rate of inflation, 9%, in the G7. And it also is going to have the lowest growth rate. The Bank of England has forecast an actual recession in the UK. It may not be the only country that has a recession, but certainly one is now expected by by the central bank and bailey gets it in the next simply for stating these very obvious truths the other obvious truth that he speaks that really enrages politicians is that he says there's not a lot you can do about this There is yes. the only thing the only thing you can really do is by taking money from one group in society and giving it to another so that they can afford these higher prices for food and of course for energy the problem that the UK has got at the moment, the Tory government in the UK, is that they're now presiding over the highest aggregate tax rate, highest taxes in the UK for well over a generation. And so where is the money going to come from if you want to help people who are on low incomes, which is up to a point the right thing to do? Um, and we've talked about this before. Uh, unfortunately, the fact which is a politically toxic but nevertheless, it is a fact, is that the right thing to do is help people as much as you can, but also to take this on the chin as much as you can. And when Bailey talks about it in these sorts of terms, which is all factually based, as I say, and is essentially speaking the truth, the thing that happens to you these days if you speak the truth is that you simply get it in an air and people call for your head.
0: Yes. The obvious Johnson ploy this week has been to turn on Europe and in particular... He visited uh, Northern Ireland on Monday and on Tuesday in the House of Commons, Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, announced that Britain unilaterally was going to rewrite the Northern Protocol. that That was an integral part, a key part, of the agreement with the EU when Britain left. If they do that, of course, they will be breaking international law and that's not a very good look, but it will cause serious problems for the European Union. It will cause serious problems for our own government and for the people of Northern Ireland as well. And what Europe has threatened in return is a trade war. Can you explain to us, Chris, what a trade war consists of and whether the Britain you described, and indeed Andrew Bailey described, as being in pretty bad shape. Are they in any way ready to fight a trade war with the biggest trading bloc in the world, the European Union?
1: Well, the short answer is obviously not. And I think we need to take a step back and think through some of these issues and ask why have we arrived at the current state of affairs. And actually, Leo Varadkar Uh, sets it out very well today in an article in The Guardian about the backstop and about the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's history about when he he met, you might recall, Boris Johnson in the Wirral. They went for a walk in the woods in October 2019, not that long ago, in which they set in train uh, a process that led to um, Boris Johnson being able to deliver Brexit to the British people in the way that he wanted, and a key integral part of that that flowed from the conversation he had while walking with Varadka to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it was a solution, and it wasn't the only solution available to them. You might remember that Theresa May had her own solution prior to that, which meant that the UK as a whole stayed in the customs union. All of these technical things were kicked out, and the hardest of possible Brexits was delivered that included this thing called the Northern Ireland Protocol to get around to the simple fact. That if you're going to do Brexit, you've got to put a border somewhere. And it either goes on the island of Ireland or it goes in the Irish Sea. And that there, there can be negotiations over what that border looks like, what checks and controls are actually put in place. And the EU, as Faradka in this article goes through, has always been very open to making things easier, to doing things more efficiently. But ultimately, the checks have to exist somewhere in some shape or form. And it's the fundamental conundrum of Brexit. And if you don't put one in the Irish Sea, you're going to have to have one on the island of Ireland with all of the yes. uh, horrible, potentially horrible implications that go with that. Um w- One thing I would say is that I think one the penny is beginning to drop that this, this problem is uh, insurmountable and that... Uh, whatever you do, um, you're going to upset somebody pretty fundamentally on one side or another in Northern Ireland. Varadka again points out that if you do away with the protocol in the way that this Truss and Johnson are threatening, unilaterally and illegally, yes. you're actually going to upset majority opinion in Northern Ireland because the recent elections, of course, had a majority the majority of parties in the Assembly and the majority of delegates to the assembly are all in favour of the protocol. Irish Northern Irish business is in favour of the protocol. And the National Institute of Economic and Social Research um, in London has recently pointed out, using again facts and figures, that the Northern Irish economy for once is doing quite well. And it thinks that the reason why it's doing quite well is because it sits very happily in the UK single market and in the European single market. And it's benefiting From the protocol. So if you do away with it, you're going to upset an awful lot of individuals and an awful lot of businesses. Um, And if you don't do away with it, you're going to upset the DUP. So somebody, somewhere, is going to be very upset, potentially with very profound consequences. And I think that a point made by a chap called David Alan Green, who's a a legal eagle, he's uh, one of the leading Financial Times legal correspondents, um, said only today that really the only solution to this. Ultimately, has to be a united island, and that this is, this is the force that Johnson is trying to head off. And I think that penny is dropping quietly in certain quarters as well, that this is ultimately is insoluble until the island of Ireland is united.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care.
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: Chris, this British government, you have described it, and I've, people will be tired of listening to me repeat it, but you did say the cabinet was a mixture of right-wing hacks, journalists, and after-dinner speakers. In other words, it was a disparaging description of it. However, would you be surprised to learn that the culture secretary, Nadine Doris, has admitted, well, she admitted it yesterday, that her Netflix passcode she shares with her family and close relatives elsewhere. That is illegal, or it's breaking the Netflix rules Can you imagine that the person who wants to privatize Channel 4, turn the BBC into a subscription service, i.e. finish a lot of its most important functions, and won't obey the basic laws of Netflix, is in the cabinet?
1: Well, not so. I mean, she she's not I mean, the culture secretary. She's the culture war secretary. That's the that's the that's the role that she plays, which is that Johnson believes that part of his electoral success in recent years has been waging war on the liberal elites of London and the metropolitan elites of other big conurbations here in the UK, and the way in which you do that is that you do these sorts of things, and that you. You, you can get away with anything provided you wage culture war. And so having broken the law himself, I don't think anybody is going to do anything other than shrug and say, well, what would you expect? We wouldn't have breaking these rules, as she herself has admitted. I don't think there's going to be a political price to be paid for this, quite frankly. But it's all part of a piece, isn't it? This cabinet is um, – this, this is all about politics rather than the economy Rather than actually people's lives, and you know you asked um about the the context for uh, what what happens to the economy if this uh, culture war that rages in the u k one of the casualties will be a, or outcomes will be a trade war with europe and Uh, Sunak will be sitting there at the cabinet table or in private conversation with Johnson saying now is not the time there isn't a good time for a trade war and this couldn't be a worse time given the condition the economy is in the inflation that we spoke about Mr. Johnson that is now 9% unlike in Europe um, the trading partner with whom you're about to embark on a war potentially, um, doesn't have the same inflation problem that we have. Not only do we have the highest inflation rate, it's seeping out into the wider economy, into services, for example. All of this food and energy inflation is seeping out into the broader economy in a way that it isn't yet in Europe. We are in such a worse... And so you'll be going through these details of the economy with Johnson. Johnson will be looking at him, presumably... Fiddling on his phone, or eyes glazed over, or doing something else other than listening to because he will, I think, have the view. Well, so what? Um, the point of all of the things that I do is to stay in power, and the way in which I stay in power is by appeasing the right wing hacks in my cabinet and the right wing. Well, I, I could use a very rude word here, mm-hmm. but the right wingers in my conservative parliamentary party, all of whom. Um, want me to uh, tear up the Northern Ireland Protocol, or at least a a significant number of them do. There's an interesting debate over whether or not there is enough of a minority, uh, sensible people left in the Conservative Party who might actually vote against Britain uh, abrogating an international treaty which it both negotiated and signed. There are some people who are a bit worried about this in the Conservative Party. There are some sensible ones left in this regard. But, you know... um, In terms of what they're up to, it's not just us talking about this. You presumably heard of Richard Neal, who's the Democratic Chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. Yes. He has chair of the committee which has jurisdiction over tax and guess what? Trade. Trade. Yeah. Yeah. And he is I could quote something he said this week. It's gonna ruffle the feathers of a lot of people here in Washington. We don't believe that Ireland should be held hostage to turbulence in the UK's political structure. And it's that last phrase that really caught my eye, which is that they know that this is all about Johnson playing politics within his own party and that if Ireland is to be a casualty of that, it would be A, a tragedy, and something B, the US would get extremely cheesed off with. And yes. Nancy Pelosi has said something similar this week. And so it is all about keeping right wing Tories on board, play hardball with the EU. Always a good thing to do in that regard, because these people have a visceral hatred of all things EU. And, um, you know, play uh, play up to the gallery in the DUP because the, the hard right of the Tory party is very friendly and fond of the DUP. And a because of who they are and the kind of things that they espouse, but mostly because of the, of the help the DUP gave them in delivering the diamond hard Brexit that they got. So, um, this appeasing of the DUP is, is where Johnson is at, it's where this Truss is at. And don't forget that one thing that this trust, the game that she's playing, is that, is that if there is a chance in the next few years, and it looks as if it's a very small chance that Johnson is kicked out, she wants to be the next leader. And so if you want to be the next leader, you don't do sensible things with foreign policy, with trade policy, and all the things that they're supposed to be doing. You play to the gallery of the Parliamentary Conservative Party and you do what she is doing. And you claim that um, tearing up a treaty that you negotiated and signed is perfectly legal, which another um, member of the government, Suela Braverman, the, the Attorney General, searched for a lawyer, high and low, yeah. to say that this Tearing up of the treaty would be legal, and she found one, uh, only one apparently, who guess what, happens to be a big supporter of Donald Trump, amongst other things. So one lawyer um, out of a, you know any, one lawyer out of a thousand thinks that tearing up the treaty would be a good thing. 9 hundred ninety nine of them say that it would be absolutely appalling and, and illegal, but that's where we're at.
0: Where is Britain as a society? We're seeing things There's been a lot of important football matches this week, Chris. And I know the football isn 't your thing, but last night, for example, a f- football league a manager, a, a respected coach, kicked a fan the night before a fan who turned out to be an engineer, a middle class guy was given fourteen weeks in jail for headbutting a player at the end of the Nottingham Forest match. There is racism rampant in sport, in soccer in particular, it appears to be a dangerous, unstable, and unsettled society. Too much drink, too many drugs, too much anger being generated. It goes beyond politics right to the heart of the culture. And I speak as somebody who is pro-British, but I wouldn't want... I'd be afraid to live in Britain, almost.
1: Well, I do. So um, I, I wouldn't necessarily share your apocalyptic, to use a, a, a current phrase, um, pessimism about the country. But some of the problems that you um, identified. Well, if you go to a I'll football be, match, for I'll example... Yeah, no, no, I know. And, and, and Patrick Vieira. Um, yes. Uh, I do know a little about football. He was a hero of mine when he played at Arsenal. That's right. But um,
0: he was on the march again last night, kicking people. Yes,
1: indeed. Indeed, um, and um, there obviously there's going to be consequences flowing from that. But the the, the the situation is, at least in part how you describe it, the, the, the phenomena that you describe are present in other countries. They're not exclusively British phenomena. But one of the things that happens is if, if you wage this culture war and you tell people that they are being done down by the metropolitan elites, that, in, that if you instruct people to be angry, Then guess what? They become angry, and this is this. If you put people's backs up against a wall, invariably they come out swinging, don't they? And This it's a tried and trusted tactic in politics. And if you ignore reality, if you ignore the things that Andrew Bailey is trying to point out for long enough, then that degrades the environment in which you're living. It degrades the economy, and as you are hinting at, it degrades the society in which you live. And one of the things that I can tell you, and we've talked about this before, because I flip backwards and forwards between Ireland and the UK quite a lot these days, is that the the feel of the place is kind of how you describe. And the, the feel of the UK just is so much worse than the feel that I get when I... Um, I'm, I'm in Ireland, and yes. it, the, the, being an outside observer enables you to make these more touchy-feely, more emotionally-based judgments, if you like. And, you know, you, you have a much more stable culture than we do here in the UK. Speaking as an economist, I would say that um, – and, and something of a, of a, you know, of a, of a Brexit-phobe – um, I would say this, wouldn't I? But the, the the economic history of the UK, if you can go back to when they had the empire, the economy did very well. From between the, the end of empire, at the end of the Second World War, until Britain joined what was then the EEC in 1973, uh, the, the British economy went backwards. On all measures that we use, relative living standards, GDP per head, all that kind of stuff, the, the UK economy fell behind. And that's why successive generations of politicians in the UK tried to join the EU because they knew that the facts back then facts mattered that Britain was falling behind economically. And when you fall behind economically, you fall behind socially as well. There are social consequences yes, to economic Problems. Then we joined the EEC that became the EU. And depending on how you look at it, we either held our own with the rest of the EU. Or on some measures, we actually did better. And, think, and economically, things got better from the moment we joined the EU. And uh, that broad brush generalization is absolutely true. And since the referendum, guess what? On all of those metrics that we look at, They're going down again and living standards and GDP behead, all of those things that economists like me look at are starting to fall behind Europe again. And that's a gradual degradation of economic life it's a fact, you can't dispute it, you can just look at the measures yourself if you like, has social and personal consequences. Yes. And I'm I'm not saying necessarily that racism in in football flows from all of this, but when your economy is being degraded, life in general is being degraded, and it pops up in all sorts of expected and unexpected ways. So yeah, life in Britain is gradually being degraded by... The, the political circus that is Westminster and the economic damage that it's doing.
0: Yeah, and I should say should have said that violence around soccer in particular is not confined to Britain, it's it's widespread across Europe. Just want to ask you a final question about the role the media plays in this, popular press in particular, in the coarsening of the culture but also the celebration of Johnsonian behavior and policy.
1: Yeah, well, th- there's a couple of aspects to that. The way in which I think about it is, that, first of all, look at the facts. What are the media actually doing in terms of conducting this debate? How do they? What role are they playing in the public square, if you like? And an example of what I think you're hinting at is the uh, Daily Mail this week when Uh, it was announced that Johnson wasn't going to be fined again. Banner headlines, what a farcical waste of time and money, this investigation (laughs) of Johnson. The same newspaper, only a few days ago, had 16 days of front-page banner headlines calling for an investigation into Keir Starmer and so-called Beergate. And so the the hypocrisy and the two-facedness and the being able to do this sort of thing almost, with, well, not almost, but without shame or without even any underlying sense of irony, is extraordinary. And so, yes, the debate uh, is conducted in that way. The second way to, the second more touchy feely judgmental question to ask is how much of that actually matters. I don't know, is, is, is the honest answer, but it must matter a bit. These newspapers are not what they were, they don't have the circulation that they did. But what we do know is that Johnson and co pay a huge amount of attention to them and manage their own affairs yes. to generate these headlines. So it does affect these headlines, do affect political decision making, and they do have real consequences. Whether they are the um, arbiters of public opinion in the way that they were. Thanks to their much lower circulation, they they probably are not what they were. But then that just throws up the question of what is the arbiter of public opinion? And you then into that debate about social media, which arguably is an even bigger cesspit than the tabloids here in in Britain.
0: And just a final add-on to your comment about the mail and their, they hunted Kirstarmer for seven successive days saying that he had to acknowledge that he would resign if he got a notice from the Metropolitan Police or the Durham Police, as it is in this case. When he he eventually said he would, he would resign, they they put him in a corner, he said he would resign if he got a fixed penalty notice from Durham Police. The following day's headline was Starmer puts pressure on Durham police by saying he will resign if he gets a fixed penalty notice. You,
1: you couldn't make it up? No. I mean, couldn't make I'm it up. I'm not making it up. Let me, let let me, up.
0: Me, that is a fact.
1: Let me conclude with <laughs> um, uh, a thought which I know that some people um the editor of the Spectator, the political editor of the Spectator, for example, is is musing on this because what has been noticed with upcoming by elections in particular and um, some of the council elections in which the Tories did so badly is there seems to be a um, quiet quiet voce pact between the Labour Party and the Lib Democrats. Lib Dems. And yeah. because the simple fact is that the Tory party are in government with about 30 something percent of the popular vote, and that the majority of people in this country did not vote for them. And that if that fact could be harnessed politically, yes. electorally, um, they're saying, it, it, you know, with a permanent uh, change in the way in which we vote in this country, which if the Lib Dems and Labour do get their act together, um, they would presumably, on the table, at least for discussion, would be proportional representation, something the Lib Dems have always wanted. The Tories would be out of power, not just at the next general election, but forever. So I end on that optimistic thought.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, Chris, for joining us from London. That's Chris Johns. We're grateful to Chris, as always, to all of you for listening. And That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.